Thank you so much, Suri, and thank you all for coming. I, I, I'm sure it's not exactly the unbusiest season for anybody here, and for the thirst of learning that you see throughout the West Side, and it, it's such an inspiration to me, and I'm sure to so many coming. The key question I need to ask before going too far along is that I don't feel like I'm booming, but you can all hear me okay? That's great. First, I just want to thank Suri and the entire Rudolph family for inviting me. It's an honor and privilege to be honoring the memory of Stanley Rudolph, and of course, this year is dedicated in his memory. I'm going to put on my Drisha hat for a moment. I don't work here. It's an honor to be teaching at Drisha. This is an organization and an institute that I grew up, really the first generation where, I mean, I went to Ramaz, and anybody who went there knew that it was the girls who were good at Talmud, and the boys were sitting in the back and shooting spitballs. But that was the beginning of an era where it felt normal for boys and girls to be sitting side by side, having the same curriculum and access to our sacred texts, to the point where I was bizarred out when I found out that anybody had an issue with it. What, and thank God, I'm glad to grow up in a generation. I'm raising my daughters so that for them it's all just Jews study Torah and Jews teach Torah. And it's such a bracha that Drisha, which is really at the vanguard and forefront of this, when it wasn't as taken for granted, and when it wasn't as normal as it feels to me, it's really a privilege to be able to teach Torah. I've heard many lectures here. It's good to be able to come and try to, to, to share some Torah with you here. So thank you so much. But I know you're inviting me from your family point of view, but I happen to be honored to be teaching at Drisha as well. Officially, oh great, that's yours, I got mine. We're, we're, all, we're, all, we're all good. Officially, Tanakh is supposed to shape our lives, and my large parts of my life are dedicated to trying to understand it, to teaching it, to sharing ideas, and to debating ideas with people. And so that sounds good. It's the Word of God. It's divine inspiration. It forms the heart and core of Judaism, and it has inspired literally billions of people. But that's the theory, and the theory is good. In practice, what happens is that it's subject to interpretation by good old-fashioned people. And when it's subject to interpretation, that leads to very interesting and complicated educational issues. And when we learn as religious Jews, we're studying not only to become good scholars, even though that's an aspect of learning, but it's also to become more religious through study. That's the point of access to our sacred texts. And so Chazal and later Parshanut had a very big problem with Kohelet. They did. Let's just be honest about it. And the reason is because it just ain't like the other 23 books in Tanakh at all. <laughs> and Chazal and later Parshanut had a very serious ser series of, of questions that they really had to reckon with. And it, they dealt with different challenges in different midrashim. I wanted to go through a couple of source sheets, which thank you to the preparers, Jordana, and anybody else who helped put together all of these source sheets. We'll look at them briefly just to get a sense of the range of how to deal with educational problem in general and challenges, and then we'll shift into Kohelet in specific tonight. Rabbi Shmuel Bar Nachman said in Rabbi Yonatan's name, for each of these sources I'm going to read the English for the sake of a public lecture, but the Hebrew is available, of course, for anybody who wants to look at the original. When Moshe was engaged in writing the Torah, he had to write the work of each day. So you can just imagine, God says, Breshit, well, I always do this, you know. I'm a lefty, so of course I just naturally do this. Moshe Rabbeinu was a righty. I'm sure of this. I'm sure that he did it with... He may have been born left-handed, but I'm sure that they trained him to write right-handed. But in the meantime... <laughs> he had to write the work of each day. When he came to the verse and God said, Let us make man. 
So you and I might understand this verse however we want to understand this verse, but the word us is very perplexing to a lot of people. Moshe Rabbeinu puts down his quill and he said, sovereign of the universe, before I write this down, you know, it's your Torah, your God, I'm just Moshe Rabbeinu, but I really don't want to write this. Why do you furnish an excuse to heretics for maintaining a plurality of gods? It's like, God, are you sure you want to say na'ase adam? Are you really, really sure about that word choice? Why can't you just say e'ase adam, I shall make man? That would work. And God says, right replied he, and whoever wishes to err will err. Talk about intellectual integrity of God, right? It's incredible. What a powerful source. I love this one. Right? What's, what's it all about? This Midrash is saying God wanted to write pristine truth in the Torah. And yes, some people will co-opt some or all of the Torah to support his or her theology. That's what people do. I learned this lesson in graduate school. The first term paper I wrote was on the disputation of Barcelona with, with Pablo Cristiani versus Ramban in 1263. I couldn't believe that anybody thought that they could prove from the Talmud that the sages of the Talmud believed in Christianity. Who would have even thought that? And yet, here he gave a very learned discourse, a wrong discourse, but a learned discourse, trying to demonstrate just that. And Ramban said, hey, before we even get into specifics, they would have all converted, no? Good point, Ramban. So, you know, Ramban won the, the disputant zero. But... That's, by the way, who Chazal probably are thinking about. And Rav Sadia Gaon writes that early Christians certainly used this pasuk, Na'ase Adam, as some reference to Trinitarian theology. So the Midrash is saying, in God's mouth no less, integrity comes first, right? If God wants to write Na'ase Adam because that's the better word choice, even though misguided people may draw the wrong conclusions, so be it. God wants to have the Torah purely truthful. So when it comes to how to respond to somebody who has an agenda, the answer is, don't worry about them at all. Let's teach truth. Good. That's source number one. Source number two is, what happens if you translate the Torah into Greek so that it is accessible to all people, not just Jews anymore? Well, that goes to the story of the so-called Septuagint in source number two. It is related of King Ptolemy that he brought together 72 elders and placed them in 72 separate rooms without telling them why he had brought them together. So you have 72 poor rabbis who are busy preparing for the holidays and doing a million things. Suddenly he ra- rounds them up and puts them in separate soundproof rooms. And he went to each one of them and said to him, translate for me the Torah of Moses, your master. And then God inspires them, right? God then prompted each one of them and they all conceived the same idea and wrote for him. God created the, in the beginning and I shall make men. E'ese adam. Amazing. In the original Septuagint, God inspired these sages to change from Na'ase Adam and turned it into E'ase Adam. I, in the singular, will make man. Why? Yeah. When you're give, putting it out there to pagans and they see Na'ase Adam, even though all the other verbs in that chapter are singular, that might help support the thesis that we're dealing with monotheism, not polytheism. Okay. But if you just look at this verse in a vacuum, some people, many people, might draw the wrong conclusions, and therefore God inspired them to all mistranslate for the sake of truth. So that way they understand that the Torah is a monotheistic document. Rabbi Yitzchak Hutner once taught, it's a miracle, of course, that these 72 rabbis all agreed sitting in 72 separate rooms. It would have been a much bigger miracle if they were all sitting in the same room. <laughs> and, all, and all agreed, I, I tend to share that 
tend to share that point of view. So, so far we've seen two possibilities. One is what happens with people who have agendas that first Midrash says, God says, don't worry about it. But when it comes to honest people who just want to know what does the Torah say, well then we actually have to be careful how we present ourselves because we may give a terribly false impression and it's better to deviate slightly if that leads to the right conclusion that the Torah obviously is trying to teach. There's a third source, which I did not put on the pages. It's in Megillah Daf Kaf Amud Aleph 25a, where it talks about what about sincere Jews in synagogue? You know that in the good old days, you got reading in Hebrew, and then they translated it into Aramaic for people who did not understand Hebrew. Nowadays, we don't do that. It picks up the pace, but then we need an English translation on the side, right? So that's our, that's our way of dealing with it, with publishing. But in the olden days, you had a reader who read the Torah or Haftarah in Hebrew, and somebody else who was reading concurrently, one verse after another, in Aramaic. The Talmud, already the Mishnah rules, there are certain passages that you read, but you're not allowed to translate. And there are certain passages in Navi, the Torah, you have to read it all, but in Navi that you're not even allowed to read them in Hebrew because they're shameful, they lead to confusing conclusions. And the sages point out there's an element of here, censorship, right? The idea is that those who know Hebrew, they know what's there, they, they know the context, they know the setting, they won't get confused. But if people hear stuff in translation and don't know the broader setting and don't have the learning background, they could draw very wrong conclusions out of sincerity. These are Jews in synagogue. These are not pagans reading what is the Torah in Greek. These are not people with religious agendas contrary to that of the Torah. These are sincere Jews who want to learn. And this is the third category. Sincere Jews who want to learn from Tanakh. And Chazal were afraid that certain things in Tanakh are better left untaught. And Kohelet kind of, here's our segue, Kohelet kind of fit into that general framework. Chazal were nervous wrecks about Kohelet. I'm building this up, and you know, as a speaker, you're never supposed to build things up because it's never as good when you build it up. Forget it. When I build things up, I'm sure that, I'm sure that it's okay, and I, I don't feel like I'm going to fall flat on my face as a result. If you're familiar with Kohelet, it is, first of all, you can get really depressed if you read it superficially. You know, Suri mentioned we read Kohelet on Sukkot. You should know it's not we. Many of us do. I don't. It's not my minhag to read Kohelet on Sukkot. And I actually prefer that because it's a very lengthy and quick reading. The few times that I've heard it, I wasn't able to latch onto it, and it's one of my favorite books. So my solution is always learn it around the time of the holidays, like what we're doing, and leave it to somebody else to actually read it because it's their minhag, and we have to be respectful of different minhagim. But not all Jewish communities accepted the minhag of reading Kohelet, unlike the other Megillot that are pretty universal. Chazal raised the question, given that Kohelet is now in Tanakh, what do you do about it? And they raise a remarkable question in source number three. Shabbat Lamed Amud Bet. The sages wished to hide the book of Kohelet. Talk about censorship. They were going to ban this whole book from Tanakh because its words are self-contradictory. They were afraid of the following conclusion. If Kohelet is inspired by God and God has his act together, which we sort of expect, well, then God isn't contradicting himself all the time. And if there are contradictions, that would lead people like us to say, hmm, there are contradictions. It couldn't have all been inspired by God. So that's the question. How do you suppose that the sages are going, without looking ahead, how do you suppose the sages will solve this? Since in my handy-dandy Tanakh right here, and I'm sure in many of yours, Kohelet is there. They did not choose to censor the book. So how do you think they're going to solve this problem? If there are contradictions. Oh, no. 
How could it all be inspired by God? What will be their solution? Oh, so you're five steps ahead of the game. But the first thing that the sages are going to do is try to solve the contradictions, right? Let's show, oh, they're not really contradictory. This is talking about one thing, this is talking about another thing, and so on. All the typical rabbinic strategies for what we call harmonization, they're going to be there and they're going to do it. And that's their way of saying, it looked like it was contradictory, but you were not reading it right. But if you only read it right, nothing contradicts at all. That's the usual move that Chazal do when they find something that they feel is contradictory and are concerned with. Well, well, look at the next line. Yet why did they not hide it? So the answer should be, because they fixed the contradiction. I just wanted to build that point up. And by the way, later on in this paragraph, they do try to fix some of the contradictions. But read this next line because its beginning is religious teaching and its end is religious teaching. That has nothing to do with contradictions, folks. That has to do with something much bigger and broader and more dangerous. If its beginning is kosher and the end is kosher, what does that suggest about the middle? The middle must be kosher too, which means what are they really fearful of here? This isn't contradictions. What are they worried about? The middle. Now, if you go to a catered affair, right, and you didn't hear who the mashkiach was, and so you ask your, your religious compatriot over there who's busy wolfing down the sushi, right? Well, is it, who's the mashkiach? Look, I can't tell you the whole meal, but the shmorg is this supervision and the dessert is this supervision, so I say go for the main. That sounds really weird, no? Like, no, you should find out every step of the way to make sure that every, there's no hanky-panky along the way and that nobody's cutting corners. And the sages are saying because the beginning is consistent with the Torah and the end is consistent with the Torah, that means the middle <coughs> must be consistent with the Torah. But that means that they're afraid that it's not. And by the way, I'll go out on a limb here. It's not. It's really different from the Torah. And that's why the sages are so concerned with this issue. They are concerned with contradictions and later Mifarshim are also concerned with contradictions. But they're really way more concerned with you or me or any of us reading Kohelet and walking away less religious than we were before we opened the book. That's what they're worried about. To give you an example, here you see how Chazal think, and you, you might be scratching your head by the end of this example. We'll get to think a little bit about how Chazal thought about the world, and I always appreciate that. One verse is, source number four, it's, toward, it's in chapter 11, verse 9 of Kohelet. O youth, enjoy yourself while you are young. Go party while you're young. Let your heart lead you to enjoyment in the days of your youth. Follow the desires of your heart and the glances of your eyes. But know well that God will call you to account for all such things. Party while you're young. Have a wonderful time. But God is going to smite you down if you make the wrong choices, right? Okay, something along those lines. Now, when I read a verse like this, it sounds like a very life-affirming verse. And it sounds like you just have to make the right decisions within your enjoyment. If you think otherwise, go right ahead. That's what I read when I read this verse. Why? Because I read the whole verse. And that's what it sounds like when you take all of its components together. But the sages were very into atomization, meaning they very often made entire drashot on the basis of part verses. For example, and this is what the next source, source number five in Vayikra Rabbah, is all about. They use this verse and they take it in a totally different direction from how I just, I thought, sensibly read it. Because I'll read it differently. Rabbi Binyamin ben Levi stated, the sages wanted to store away the book of Kohelet for they found in it ideas that leaned toward heresy. All right, now we're getting somewhere, right? This clearly was inherent in the previous source in Shab Masachet Shabbat, that there were things that lead toward anti-Torah, but this source says that. 
The other one implied it. This one says it. They argued, was it right that Shlomo should have said the following, rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in all the days of your youth? Moshe had said, go not about after your own heart and after your own eyes. We say that in the Shema. And here's Shlomo saying in Kohelet, go after your heart and your eyes. Now, how would you answer that question? Huh? Yeah, you didn't read the whole verse. Read the rest of it. But see, this is how Chazal thought about the world. And this is how Chazal knew that their audiences thought about the world. Not everybody was such a great Pashtun. Chazal were great Darshanim. They knew Pshat, but that was not their priority. They were much more into atomization. And other people also were into atomization. And there was a very real risk that people would see a half verse, like the first half, and say, oh, the wisest of all, Kohelet himself, Shlomo HaMelech, is saying that we should party while we're young. Let's go party. So then Chazal come along and say, what then? Is all restraint to be removed? Is there neither justice nor judge? What's going on here? How do we keep Kohelet in Tanakh? When, however, he said, but know thou, the second half of the verse, right? Your answer, my answer, all of our answers. This is how Chazal see piece by piece rather than the whole context. When, however, he said, but know thou that for all these things God will bring you into judgment, they go, phew, they admitted that Shlomo had spoken well. Amazing. Were Chazal really worried about people taking this half verse out of context? The answer is yes, they were. And yes, they were concerned about people taking a lot of these verses out of context. And if you don't take the whole book in context, you actually could walk away with some of these conclusions. A lot of my students, when they start, they're all depressed. And they say, oh, it's all so pessimistic and life is so hopeless and meaningless and this and that. But at least my third grade teacher taught me that. This world is worthless, but at least if you study Torah, you can do something better. And then I'll always ask at this point in the shiur, it's like, do you actually care what the words of Kohelet say? Or do you want to stick with what you got in third grade? You know, don't, you don't need a refund intuition. The, the teacher did a good job in third grade. You don't want to learn Kohelet straight up when you're eight. That's a bit much. But the words obviously don't say that. The words have a lot more going on, even if you have just a basic familiarity with that. So the good news is Chazal chose not to censor, Tanakh, uh, censor Kohelet from Tanakh. But they were nervous wrecks about this book. And later Mifarshim, later rabbinic commentators also were nervous wrecks. Now later Mifarshim don't have the option of saying, why don't we get this book out of Tanakh? That's no longer part of the agenda. Chazal, or at least earlier generations of Chazal, had some kind of opportunity in theory to toy with whether certain books should or should not be included. But once they were included and accepted as part of the canon, that's it. It's there. Later interpreters are left with one task, and that is to interpret. But when you interpret, well, you're functioning as two things simultaneously. You're functioning as a scholar. What do the words mean? What is the context? What, what globally is this book really about? And you're also functioning as a religious educator. You don't want people to read your commentary or this book and to walk away less religious than when they started because that would be a disaster. You'd feel awful. That is a shirking of responsi religious responsibility. And so our Mifarshim, as much as they are committed to Pshat everywhere else, they really struggle with a lot of verses. Different ones struggle with different verses. And they develop strategies. Strategies that, if you're reading to try to understand what Kohelet means, might make you smile, might make you appreciate why they're doing what they're doing. They might make you cringe, saying, I don't think that that's what the words mean. I'm not talking about where there's a debate between Mifarshim and it's really not clear what it means. I'm talking about where it's obvious. Example, Kohelet, the wisest of all men, challenges wisdom. He doesn't say that wisdom is bad. In fact, he never says that wisdom is bad. You know why? 
Because wisdom is fantastic. You've got to have some. Right? Wisdom is really good, and Kohelet is quite pro-wisdom. But wisdom isn't all rosy the way that they taught you in school and the way that the sages wanted us to think. Wisdom comes with a lot of responsibilities, a lot of frustrations when we realize we don't know anything, a lot of frustrations when you realize that life is contradictory and complex, and, and the more complex you find things, that doesn't always make you a happier person. So Kohelet says that. Kibarov Chochmas, source 6, for as wisdom grows, vexation grows. Vex remains one of my all-time favorite words because it is really good in Scrabble, right? It's three letters, and you got that X, and the V is really good, plus you get to get rid of the V. Xs are always easier to use. But in the meantime, it's 13 points without any bonus, without any bonus squares at all. I always like that one. So vexation to me is a very good thing. And if you got vexation, whew, I can't even imagine how glorious that would be. But in the meantime, Kohelet doesn't like it. For as wisdom grows, vexation grows. To increase learning is to increase heartache. Now, I am willing to accept that. Many of you pr- might be willing to accept that too. But Rav Ovadia Seforno, who was a great Pashtun in 15th century Italy, his eyes bugged out so far that you could feel the buggage 500 years later on the page when you read it. He could not believe that the wisest of all men would say things that there are limitations about wisdom. You should just say, get as much as you can all the time. It's fantastic. Something along those lines. Not, it makes you miserable and it gives you heartache and vexation and all of that. So Svorno says, oh, Kohelet must be Kohelet must be talking about wisdom of heretics. Now, I don't think so, right? And most of our Mifarshim don't think so either. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to pick any fights with Svorno here, but everybody picks a fight with Svorno on this one. It's very clear that he's not talking about wisdom of heretics. He's talking about his own wisdom. And he's talking about all of our wisdom. He's talking about human wisdom. He's not talking about evil things that intelligent heretics might say. That's not what this is about at all. Now, why is Sephorno doing this? And this happened hundreds of times, not specifically on this verse, but across the Sefer, you read our Pashtanim, you will find what I will think of as radical reinterpretation. Not just where there's a debate, it's not really clear what it means, adopting a slightly forced interpretation, that's fine. Everybody does that. We're talking about where it's so obviously not where the verse means that I wonder whether or not Sephorno really thought that that's what he, what he was writing as Pshat. In other words, did Sephorno think it can't be that Shlomo Amelech is challenging the benefits of wisdom and therefore it must be wisdom of heretics? Or did he think, look, he's talking about real wisdom, but I can't write that in my perush because somebody might read that and say, oh, it's better not to be wise. I'm not sure if he was going as a scholar or educator in this or in so many other examples where different Mepharshim do it. Now, that's strategy number one, radical reinterpretation. This happens a lot. So much so that when you, like, you know, again, I learned as a kid, I was taught the classic Midrashic one-line synopsis. Chazal have a much more complex picture of, of Kohelet, but I was taught the only thing that's valuable is Torah. Now, don't get me wrong. Torah is extremely valuable. But that's not what Kohelet teaches. In fact, Kohelet never once mentions the word Torah, for example. So to say that that's the only message of the Sefer is clearly false. And to say that there's not other stuff going on is clearly false. So clearly false. So that's one strategy of Mifarshim, radical reinterpretation. What does Ibn Ezra do? Poor, poor Ibn Ezra. He doesn't like radical reinterpretation, and it aggravates him to no end when other Mifarshim do that sort of thing. It's like words is words, and you've got to interpret them fairly. Yes, we can debate what they mean exactly, but you can't say that this is about wisdom of heretics. It just doesn't. 
right? So what does Ibn Ezra do when he finds psukim that he finds irksome, such as source number seven? I like it. It's very happy, actually, but he doesn't think so. Go eat your bread in gladness and drink your wine in joy, for your action was long ago approved by God. Let your clothes always be freshly washed and your head never lack ointment. Enjoy happiness with a woman you love all the fleeting days of life that have been granted to you under the sun all of your fleeting days, just in case you thought they weren't fleeting enough. He throws it back in there. For that alone is what you can get out of life and all the means you acquire under the sun. Now, you could take this and many other passages as hedonistic, right? Look, you're going to die anyway, so just live it up while you can, right? Many, many verses in Kohelet do sound like that. I don't think that that's what Kohelet is driving at at all. But nonetheless, Ibn Ezra is worried about this. So what does he do? You can't radically reinterpret this to mean something completely different. So he just says, oh, Shlomo is quoting idiots, right? That's what he says in source number eight. You don't see him quoting anybody, but obviously Shlomo doesn't think this because it's such foolish advice. This is the folly that people say in their hearts. And then Kohelet speaks up. Ibn Ezra starts a different trend, which continues to this very day in certain circles, where a very convenient means of solving difficult verses in Kohelet is not to radically reinterpret them anymore, but to say, oh, Kohelet is quoting fools. Kohelet is quoting people he disagrees with. Kohelet is quoting heretics. He's quoting wicked people. Whoever he's quoting, he's not speaking for himself. The downside of all of those interpretations is that you're adding a speaker who just isn't here. And in in fact, it's incredibly arbitrary, right? It's kind of like when people are bothered by a certain passage, so they put a question mark at the end of it, like lotir tzach, lotinaf, lotignov. You can put question marks anywhere, but you know what? That's not how you read the verse, right? And, And that's very important when it comes to understanding biblical syntax and just how to give fair interpretation. So Ibn Ezra adopts this system, which again, to this very day, some advocates continue to say, whenever there's a verse that an interpreter is bothered by on religious grounds, rather than reinterpreting it away, they just say, oh, he must be quoting somebody else. And that, of course, puts all the power into the hands of the interpreter. Whereas the good Pashtun is supposed to put all the power into the hands of the Sefer. Because after all, it's the word of God and we interpreters are not. And that's the failing of that sort of approach. When it comes to contradictions, even Ezra develops a huge strategy, which if I put it in the source sheets, it would have been the source sheets. It's an enormous discussion that he has. You could look at it on its, on its own. He writes this in Perak Zion Pasuk Gimel. I just gave you his premise. One sees in Solomon's words that in this book, difficult matters. In many places he says one thing and then it's opposite. For this reason, our sages said that the sages wanted to hide Kohelet because its words can t- contradict themselves. It is known that the greatest lightweight among the wise would not compose a book and contradict himself in that book. Ibn Ezra takes for granted, not only would God not contradict himself, even a decent intellectual would not contradict himself. And that's why he develops a whole long system of how to reconcile the contradictions in Kohelet. Now, the reality is, let's say they work. I'm not very convinced by a lot of them. I'm sure you would not be convinced by a lot of them. But let's say they really worked. You at least have to ask the question, why are there like so many contradictions that everybody needs to feel that they have to solve them? It's not addressing the fundamental issue of why is Kohelet written with so many contradictions that we need to apologize for? Maybe something else is going on. We're not going to read these passages inside. Rav Soloveitchik and Rabbi Karmi and Dr. Schatz, some of the great religious philosophers of our century, well, it's not our century anymore, of the 20th century, and, 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 and Rabbi Karmi and Dr. Schatz continue into the 21st, may they live and be well. They argue that Ibn Ezra's premise is rooted in Greek philosophy, where in fact Greek philosophers found it embarrassing to contradict themselves. 
Tanakh is not only not embarrassed by that, Tanakh does that for a living. That's, Tanakh builds in all kinds of facets and contradictions. And that's the premise of Kohelet. And, and Rabbi Carmi and Dr. Schatz in their source, in source number 11, they use Kohelet as the banner example that Tanakh doesn't see contradictions as, compl- as negative, quite to the contrary. Contradictions are what, what make it work because life is complicated. And that brings us to the summary, and then we're going to move on to strategy. How do we deal with a book like Kohelet? To summarize what we've seen so far, Chazal considered banning the book altogether. That was rejected, thankfully. So Baruch Hashem, we have Kohelet. Our Mifarshim, when embarrassed by a series of psukim and or contradictions, have three classical strategies. One is radical interpretation. One is attribute inconvenient verses to another speaker, even though there's nothing in the text that says there's another speaker here. And a third possibility is strategies for reconciliation without asking the bigger question of why are there so many contradictions in the first place. And that brings us to statistics. Back from my baseball fan days, I always found them very handy, and I find them even more handy when dealing with with Tanakh. And I find that if you pay attention to why Kohelet is so different, you can start allowing it to have its own voice rather than trying to make it into something that it clearly is not. Number one. The expression Takar HaShemesh, here is a good statistic for you, Takar HaShemesh, under the sun, it appears over and over and over in Kohelet, if you sit there counting them, it appears 29 times. And then you have Takar HaShemayim, under the heavens, which Rashi and others think means the same thing as Takar HaShemesh, three more. So it's 32 times under the heavens or under the sun. In all the other 23 books of Tanakh combined, those expressions appear zero times. Well, maybe Kohelet is talking about something else then, isn't he? You know, in sec- first or second grade, whatever it was in Manhattan Day School, we spent all kinds of time, you know, ani halakti. We, we all did this kind of stuff. I'm sure you did this kind of stuff. Now, I went, I walked. That's all nice. Except biblical Hebrew doesn't say ani halakti, right? What does it say? Halakti. You don't need that ani over there. The difference between ani halakti, well, that's what a first grader would say, and biblical Hebrew is, biblical Hebrew just says halakti. That means I, went, I walked. But Kohelet tends to say things like ani halakti and Anicha Shafti a lot, not because he's a second grader, because what does it mean in biblical Hebrew? 29 times also, right? He uses this Ani gratuitously, 29 times. When he says Anicha Shafti, Ani Yadati, what does that mean? What's the difference between Yadati and Ani Yadati? Yadati means I, kn- I knew or I know. And what is Ani Yadati? I know, right. Because he's thinking about his own perception and his own perspective. Most books in Tanakh are not thinking about your perspective or my perspective. They're thinking about God's perspective. Prophecy. God is, is calling the shots and prophets are engaging with these shots and so on and so forth. Kohelet is speaking as a person. A good way to describe the situation is if you and I were sitting next to Yechezkel, how cool would that be? During Maseh Merkava, the celestial chariot vision, we would not see his vision. We would see him, Right? We would miss the whole thing. All these grand visions, we'd have to wait for the book. Right? We would not be able to see the prophetic vision, the glorious vision that Yechezkel sees. If we're standing next to Yeshayahu and he's giving political advice, yeah, we're all experts in everything, but we could not perceive the same reality that Yeshayahu perceived because he got God telling him what was going to happen. We can guess. We might even guess like he guessed, but he wasn't guessing. He sees a different reality. If we were standing next to Kohelet, we would see the same stuff that he sees. Well, that changes the game. Kohelet is written from a purely human perspective. That's the only book in Tanakh that does that. 
And in fact, so much so that Rabbi Shimon ben Menasia, in source number 12, this is a minority opinion that was rejected, source number 12, but, he's, but he says that here's the Tana saying this. Rabbi Shimon ben Menasia says, the song of songs defiles the hands because it was composed with divine inspiration. Kohelet does not defile the hands because it is only Solomon's wisdom. Say that today, you'd get shot. Right? Right? You're not, it's, it's written Baruch HaKodesh, right? But Rav Shimon ben Menasya, even though we accept that it was written Baruch HaKodesh, is correct in his perception of the book. He's saying, why is, why is, he able, why is a Tana able to look at a book in Tanakh and say that it was written with human wisdom? Because that's what it sounds like. You and I, we couldn't really write this book because it wouldn't be as good, but we could have written this book. Right? We could not have written Sefer Yechezkel. We could not have written the other books in Tanakh. And that's what makes this book so shocking. And that's why Chazal and later Mifarshim have a really hard time because they're trying to reconcile this Kohelet's thought with all the other books of Tanakh. But the rest of the books are thinking in terms of revelation and Kohelet most certainly is not. Kohelet is thinking very much in terms of the way you and I as non-prophetic figures see the world. Here's another statistic. The word Adam appears 49 times in the book. 48 of those times it means people and one of them it actually does mean male people as opposed to women. But... It never refers to Jews, Israel, Torah, anything at all to do with our, nas- our national history. It's all about chokhmah, universal wisdom, and yirat elokim, fear of God, which applies to all people. Not only that, here's another statistic which comes in handy. Shem yud ke vavke appears in Kohelet zero times. Whereas elokim, God's more generic name, it's not even a name really, you know, it's the, it's the noun. Elohim is a god or a god, and Yudke Vavke Adonai is God's personal name. Well, Elohim appears 40 times in our Sefer, and Yudke Vavke appears zero times. It's the only Sefer that's like that. There's only one book in Tanakh that does not have God's name at all, and that is Esther, except for the other book that also doesn't have God's name at all, which is lesser known, but it's still there with no God's names whatsoever, and that is Shir Hashirim. The Song of Songs likewise has no, no reference to God's name. Kohelet stands alone in being Elohim only and Yudke Vavke not at all. What's the difference between Yudke Vavke and Elohim? Hmm? So one thing that we're taught is that Yudke Vavke is Rachamim, mercy, and Elohim is Din. Okay, good. What else? Universal. Elohim created the world. You know, Breshit Parak Aleph. Elohim created the world, the universe. And what's Yudke Vavke? It's personal. It's a personal relationship. As soon as God starts communicating with Adam and Chava, that's where Yudke Vavke gets into the picture. Well, if you serve God and only serve Elohim, what that means is that you can't pray. You could think about God. You could speculate about God. You could talk about God. You could be very religious as a speculative philosopher, but you cannot pray. You pray to Yudke Vavke. And that's why in Kohelet, he never prays. He just talks about God. God is very, very far away for Kohelet. He says in source number 13, keep your mouth from being rash and let not your throat be quick to bring forth speech before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. That is why your words should be few. Don't even bother. Tell that to poor Eov. He talked quite a bit, right? So what would Kohelet say if he saw Eov? He, he would be a different kind of friend from those lousy friends who showed up, right? What would, what would Kohelet do? He'd put his arm around Eov. Actually, he wouldn't because Eov is covered in boils and who knows if they're contagious or not. But in the meantime, Kohelet would say, look, Eov, your suffering is Hevel. 
I don't understand it. I'm not going to give you these bogus pat answers like your so-called friends over here. I don't know why God works the way that he does. So I'm not going to pretend that I know how God works. That's one of the premises of Kohelet. He doesn't know how God works. He thinks about it. He's frustrated by not knowing. But that's what he's trying to do. But you shouldn't speak so rashly because why bother? God is just going to get angry and you don't know what you're talking about, which ultimately is where Eov arrives at, although it's very powerful that he goes through that process. If he saw Avram Avinu praying on behalf of Sodom, he might admire that, but he's saying, God is going to do what God is going to do. You have no control over that. Don't even bother. Kohelet sees Elohim as being incredibly distant, and he only speaks, therefore, indirectly. He speaks about God. He never speaks to God. Well, if you have that in your religious experience, that's good, but imagine if that's all you had. Well, there goes religion, right? Suddenly it would be religious philosophy, so to speak, but it would no longer be the engaged religion of Yudke Vavke. That's another reason why Kohelet is so dangerous. There's no room for revelation or prayer or any intimate encounter with God because God is just far, far, far away, does things that we cannot control nor understand, frustrates the living daylights out of us, and we could talk about that, but there's no point in complaining about it. That's basically where he goes with all of these things. So if you want that intimate relationship, thank God there are 23 other books of Tanakh, but this one doesn't give that, and that's very scary to Chazal and later Mifashim who want to bridge Kohelet with other ones. Let me give you another example in source number 15. I further observe, this is really depressing, I hope you had a nice, stable dinner. I further observed all the oppression that goes under the sun, the tears of the oppressed, with none to comfort them, and the power of their oppressors, with none to comfort them. Then I accounted those who died long since more fortunate than those still living, and happier than either are those who have not yet come into being and have never witnessed the miseries that go on under the sun. Imagine if you read these out of context like we just did. Well, there's suffering in the world, and you can look at any world, any place. Kohelet, by the way, the reason why it's such a powerful and relevant book is because he wrote it 3,000 or so years ago, but it's everybody's reality. Right? Whether or not you're going through a particular crisis or not is irrelevant, but we all know of people going through crises and very often close to home. What Kohelet is describing is that there's suffering in this world. He's not talking about his own suffering. He's just saying there's suffering in this world. That pains him to no end, and of course, that's just the way that it is. And it's better to have died long ago, and it's even better if you were never born in the first place. What would a Navi say if he saw oppression or she, or she saw, saw oppression? Let's fix it, right? Nevi'im don't look at it and say, oh, that's the way of the world, how frustrating, better not to be born. They're like, hey, shape up your act. We don't have to do this tomorrow. We can make this better. What would Avram Avinu do if he saw oppression? He might turn to God and say, what's going on here, God? He pre- the protest tradition within Tanakh. Talk about different responses when Yudke Vavke is in the picture and when you have an active, engaged relationship with God. It doesn't mean that you know all the answers. Some people think that they do. Avoid those people. But in the meantime, we don't all all know the answers, but we protest to God, we pray, and we try to fix the society that we're in. That's what Avraham Avinu and that's what the Nevi'im do. Kohelet just sits there and says, world goes in cycles, there's oppression, this is the way it ha- always has been, this is the way it's always going to be, there's nothing you could do about it, and my oh my, that's Hevel. That is really frustrating, because I don't think it should be like that, but there's nothing that I think that I can do. So why is Sefer Kohelet so different? Well, very simply, 
He is describing a purely human reality. And by the way, you can see how sad it is when you only have a purely human, non-transcendent perspective. If you just read Kohelet from a religious standpoint and had no revelation or prayer or Yudke Vapke, any intimate relationship with God, well then suddenly you'd lose all of your moorings. You could see what would happen if somebody just learned Kohelet all of the time without the complement of all the rest of Tanakh and later tradition. You really see how painful that can be. And I'll just say one, one other point, which is Kohelet really believes, like most human beings think, history just repeats itself in a cycle. Prophecy does not see anything in history as a cycle. What does it see? World began with Gan Eden. World is going to end the way that we know it with Mashiach, which is Gan Eden. You are here, right? And it's not that it's a line, right? I used to think that it was a line. The prophets never said it's a line. It's more like a spiral. There are times that we go forward, our society improves. There are times that we regress, that we go backwards. There's no consistent evolutionary pattern of improvement necessary to our tradition. We'd like there to be, but there isn't always. There's a spiral. There are times that we improve with our society. There are times that we regress. But we always could make it to Mashiach if everybody got their act together simultaneously. And that's why the prophets could not rest. That's why they're so upset all the time. Because as long as we're not there, we got work to do. And that's what they did. They did a lot of work. And that's our job as well. Kohelet just sees it from a purely human perspective where there is no end point. It just, this is the way it's always been and therefore this is the way it's always going to be. So should Chazal banish this book? There's a danger to this book, right? You understand that this threatens revelation and prayer and all religious experience and cripples the messianic dream. If Rambam were here, that would be very bad, right? I mean, that's not true. It would be excellent, but he would be upset with he would be very upset with the idea of Kohelet negating very central axioms to what religious life are all, that's what it's all about. Well, Chazal then come up with this unbelievable statement. With all of that, they come up with one, I think one of the most astonishing statements. I saved it for my, towards the end part of the shiur. At the epilogue of the Sefer, it says, He was a wise sage, and he izained and he chikared. What does izain mean, like ozen? He heard it. Hearing means passive reception, right? In other words, the, sa- the wise sage of the previous generation is talking, and we listen, we open up our ears. And what's chikar? We analyze it, we dissect it, we challenge it, we question it. Kohelet did both of these things. The reason why Kohelet is filled with so many contradictions is because he never, he has two poles throughout the Sefer. One is wisdom that he was taught, and he never lets go of that. He never says, oh, since my reality is different, I give up on the wisdom. He always holds on to his wisdom, but he also never shuts his eyes. His experience is sacred. And therefore, whenever Kohelet says, often he does this exact thing, where he says, Yadati this. I know, I was taught. This is what my teachers taught. This is my tradition. Therefore, it's true. I I was taught A. And then Ra'iti, B, something else. And what does that leave you with? Hevel. Hevel is not nothingness. It's the frustration of this paradox. He feels this tension. He realizes 
I'm not going to use my wisdom to reinterpret reality. I don't have rose-colored glasses. Maybe regular glasses from reading so much, that's what Kohelet might say. But in the meantime, but not rose-colored glasses. I'm never going to give up my perception of truth. But I'm also never going to give up my tradition's perception of truth. Unlike Mishlei, by the way. Mishlei, just to give you the foil to Kohelet, Mishlei is all about what our tradition teaches. You get the sense of their wise teachers or wise parents, and they're conveying a tradition to the child or to the student. Kohelet isn't like that. Kohelet never closes his eyes or reinterprets his reality based on what his wisdom teaches him. He keeps both. And that's, by the way, what the difference between what you might want to do when you're a little child and what you want to do when you're an adult. Right? Mishlei was very... I, Mishlei, I struggle with this, and I, I've, I've confessed this publicly. It's, it's, it's a hard thing to confess. Tanakh has carried me for a very long time, and I've grown with all of the books, and Mishlei is one that I find hasn't been growing with me the same as the other 23. And it kills me, right? Because I want all 24 to be backing me up and I want to ride with them. But Mishlei I found much more satisfying when I was 18, 19. I loved it. It was just so pure and so good and it was just what I needed to hear. And it was, you know, he knew what he wanted to say. He had a very clear agenda and set of advice. But at some point, the Kohelet part kicked in, right? And Kohelet is like, but it's not all always like that. And I'm not going to reinterpret that reality in light of what I was taught. So I quickly fell in love with Kohelet and it was hard to then go back. I like the poles though. I like the idea of you need to have that pure committed side and then you need to have the side that challenges all the time. Kohelet enables us to izayn v'chikher at once. And any thinking religious individual should love Kohelet for that very reason. Kohelet allows adults, and thinking adults in particular, which is many, to receive tradition to ask every possible question against it, to not be afraid of those questions, quite to the contrary, to embrace them as sacred, and at the same time to hang on to the religious teaching. And that's something very grand. In fact, it's so grand that Chazal come up with, I still think that this is really one of the most remarkable sources. The final source on, the, on our page is source number 17. They make a really remarkable drasha on... On, on that pasuk that we just read. Shir Hashirim Rabbah 1.8. He pondered the words of the Torah and investigated the meanings of the words of the Torah. Exactly the expression we just looked at. He made handles to the Torah. Oznayim la Torah. It's a drasha. Yizayim means he heard. It means he received the wisdom. But Oznayim can mean handles. Said Rabbi Nachman. This is the crazy part. Ride with this. Imagine a large palace with many doors so that whoever entered could not find his way back to the door. Oh no, it's like this big labyrinth of rooms and it's so elaborate and everybody goes into the palace and suddenly you can't get out. You know why? Because nobody had invented an exit sign, right? Really, until one clever person came and took a coil of string and hung it up on the way to the door. He made an exit sign. What a genius, Bikach, this is the word in Hebrew. He was a genius. He came up with the idea for an exit sign so that all went in and out by means of the coil. Okay, very nice. I'm also appreciative as one with no sense of direction except for a really negative one. But in the meantime, I'm very grateful to people who have invented good detailed signs that actually get me where I need to go. But that's the mashal. The nimshal is the crazy part. So till Shlomo arose, no one was able to understand properly the words of the Torah. But as soon as Solomon arose, all began to comprehend the Torah. Excuse you, excuse me, what? Yoshua bin Nun didn't understand the Torah? I don't think so. I'm sure he understood it just fine. 
David HaMelech didn't understand the Torah at all, Shmuel HaNavi. Nobody understood the Torah until Shlomo came about. That's 400 plus years. What's going on here? That's a bold statement to put it mildly. What are they saying? Seems to me like what they're saying is the following. If you're a prophet, you understand the Torah just fine. If you experience revelation and then you read Matan Torah, Mamat Har Sinai, you read the words of the prophets, you can sink your teeth right into that because you can experience the world of revelation. But let's say, like many of us, we're not prophets. Our experience isn't always like what we read about in the other 23 books in Tanakh. Our experience is much more like that of Kohelet. Our experience is much more like Shira Shirim, the love between a man and a woman. You know, it talks about loving God. That sounds fantastic. How do you do that? So Moshe Rabbeinu somehow, he just knew, right? But a lot of other people don't know what to do. So Shlomo says, you know what? I need to write Shir Hashirim, where I can talk about this intimate relationship between a loving man and a loving woman. And if you understand human love, then you could start extrapolating to love of God. What a fantastic idea. But nobody thought of it before. And what if you have the same reality check that we all have, which is you look at the world and it doesn't always do what the Torah or what a Navi promises that it's supposed to do. It just doesn't. Well, you could try to reinterpret events, right? Lots of people do that. That's their safety catch to trying to reckon with it. They reinterpret everything to fit into the scheme that they've, they've already had, that they were taught. But let's say you don't do that. Let's say you don't find that honest. Well, then you need Kohelet. Right? You need somebody, the wisest of all men, who said, look, without any prophecy, just with wisdom and using my experience, I'm going to take on tradition. I'm going to confront every religious challenge. I'm not going to leave any stone unturned because I'm unafraid. I have faith. I know that God knows what he's doing. I just don't know what God is doing. And that means that I'm going to be frustrated and ask a lot of questions, and that's okay, and that's what Kohela did. He made handles to the Torah, and similarly... Rabbi Yosei said, imagine a big basket full of produce without any handle, so that it could not be lifted. So one clever man came and made handles to it, and then, let's see, before the shopping bag, I mean, what did people do? You just have this big, you know, it's very hard. So one clever man came and made handles to it, and then it began to be carried by the handles. So till Shlomo arose, no one could properly understand the words of the Torah. But when Solomon arose, all began to comprehend the Torah. It's an amazing, it's really an amazing midrash, talking about how the Torah is infinite, but it was inaccessible to regular people like us. Until Shlomo realized that, that was the whole. That's what was missing in Tanakh. We need books that sound like they were written by people. Regular people like us. Brilliant in the case of Shlomo. But all the same, it has to be written from a human perspective. Stuff that you and I can sink our teeth into without having to enter Yechezkel's world of the Merkava or the world of Ma'amad Sinai on a literal level. So to summarize everything based on this, here are some of the conclusions that I want to draw away from this or just to make sure that all the different pieces come together. One is that the concerted effort made by some of our interpreters from time immemorial to the present to reconcile Kohelet into the rest of Tanakh, they're doomed to failure because Kohelet is simply has a different voice. And our best bet is to try to understand what that voice is, what its roots are, and why it sounds so different rather than trying to either reinterpret it radically or to attribute verses that we don't like to other, to other voices or to try to reconcile contradictions. We need to understand that. The inclusion, it's a very bold move that Chazal included, Kohelet, it teaches that the human voice is sacred in our tradition. 
right? It's not the only voice. The word of God trumps all. Just ask Yonah. He had a hard time. But, but it's not the only voice. A religious relationship requires our voice to be heard. Tanakh would have been, according to Chazal's final judgment, incomplete if we only heard the word of God and never heard the word of people. And Kohelet is standing on behalf of all of us saying we need to have a dialogue, even though there's no dialogue in Kohelet. But we need to have the human voice officially as part of our sacred canon or things won't work. On the other hand, Kohelet is in fact incredibly dangerous and it's silly to think that it's not. A Kohelet perspective by itself, if one just thinks from a human perspective and never transcends, there goes prayer, there goes any relationship with God, there goes any ability to understand anything about revelation, and there's no ability anymore to transcend ourselves or our society. We just see what it is and observe and reflect and complain. The whole point of Nivua is to make us transcend, that there's something beyond ourselves, that there's a God beyond ourselves, that there's a community beyond ourselves, that there's a vision that we can aspire to. Society doesn't have to look like it does today because we can make it better. We all can do whatever he or she does to make it better. We can do that and we must do that. Nivim are required to break us out of the cycle of Kohelet. We need to have a spiral that moves us in the direction of what we call Mashiach. I salute Chazal's integrity time and again. I don't think I, I would have held on religiously myself were it not for Chazal's unbelievable integrity and intellectual honesty and realizing that an essential aspect of Torah is truth. And that truth is not just the objective divine truth, but it's also our pursuit of truth. And that is a sacred quest that we all do when we learn. The best thing that we can gain out of a shiur on Kohelet, let alone an ongoing study with it, I mean, it's, it's been quite a love relationship for me, even though it's a different kind of love from, say, the love of Yeshayahu or a different type of sefer because it is so different. But Kohelet is, is cast very much as an essential part of the great tapestry of the many voices that we find within Tanakh. And I think one of the great strengths of our tradition is the ability to hear the conversations of so many different voices from within tradition, even when they contradict or conflict or give us such different perspectives on everything. But our tradition was big enough to have all of it right within because, thank God, our tradition has a lot of faith in itself and ultimately in God. And with that, I thank you. It was a pleasure learning with you. Thank you. And we have time for... I would, lo I would love to. This is, this is where I get my water and bring them. <laughs> Very good question. The question was, I, I've been to enough lectures to realize not everybody, it, you spoke very loud, but, but, but it's, it's probably worth repeating. Does it matter when in Shlomo's life he wrote this book? So there is one Midrash, which I'm sure you might even be alluding to, where he wrote Shirashirim when he was that nice young romantic, and then Mishlei when he was a sober, wise man, and then he wrote Kohelet when he was old and bitter. There's another view in that very Midrashic passage that says he wrote all three books when he was old. And in my view, he could have written all three books and he was very young because it, the answer is no. If you try to import Shlomo's personal biography into any of these books, I think you miss what these books are trying to do, which is transcend Shlomo's life. It doesn't mean that there might not be any elements at all from his personal life, but he's describing reality that's as relevant to us as it was to him. In other words, you don't need to be old and bitter to... Again, I don't think all old people are bitter at all. I think, as, as we all know, age has a lot more to do with attitude than to do with, than to do with number of years that one happens to have lived. 
But I think that that's really true when learning Kohelet. If one is, old, is, if one is bitter in life, then Kohelet will resonate from a bitter point of view. If one is young and optimistic or old and optimistic, one will find much value just by catching onto the reality that Kohelet is trying to do. So I don't think it's a valuable endeavor to import Shlomo's personal biography into any of these books. Can I speak to why Kohelet is read by many on, on Sukkot? Now, one reason is because all the other holidays had other Megillot and we got one left. <laughs> right? I'm sure that there's something deeper than that and I'll give you the one source that I neglected to read. It happens to be in the source sheets. This is my opportunity to read it. If you go back to source number 14, Nitziv, so thank you for giving me such an opportunity as well. Nitziv, I think, hits the proverbial nail on the head with his analysis of Kohelet. And he assumes, as did the question, that everybody reads Kohelet on Sukkot. So let's take away the everybody part and focus on why many chose to read it on Sukkot. It's more than just we have one Megillah and one holiday to go. It is written in Zechariah 14, which is the Haftarah of the first day of Sukkot, by the way, that in the future the nations of the world will come to Jerusalem on Cholam Moed Sukkot to bring offerings. And this was the custom in King Solomon's time. So he doesn't know that. He's projecting. that This goes all the way back to Shlomo HaMelech's time. This is why Shlomo said Kohelet on Cholam Moed Sukkot in the presence of the wise of the nations. And this is why it contains only Elohim since non-Jews know only that name of God. Nativ realizes this book is so universalistic. It has to do with Yireh Hashem. It has to do with God-fearing people. It has nothing to do with Jews. In specific, Sukkot is the most universalistic holiday. And if you read the Haftarot even, they talk about in the future, non-Jews will come and, and celebrate Sukkot. It's all rooted in Nitziv's premise. That's the connection of Kohelet, Kohelet to Sukkot. That it was the most cosmopolitan of the holidays. I think it's an interesting balance that in this day there, Shlomo doesn't discuss the relationship between man and God and ignores it as more universal than Elohim does. It's all about it, and that's why you need both. In other words, you're right. Kohelet here is speaking as a pure, wise sage. He's saying, granting. I built the Beit HaMikdash. Shlomo is a prophet himself. He got prophecy, right? But in this book, he suspends all of that part of his relationship and focuses entirely on, as a wise person has lived life. I can't help but notice that what I've seen and what anybody would see is different from what I was taught and what I've been teaching. Now, what do I do about that? So instead of either reconciling what he saw into what he was taught or walking away from it all and giving up on wisdom, he's teaching us how to do both, which comes with a lot of contradictions. That's why there's so many contradictions. But that's the, that's the beauty of, of Yahadut, that it enables us to have those questions and to continue to confront God rather than to run away. So I think you're right. I think it even hits the point stronger. It goes back to the question about his biography. Yeah, Shlomo isn't always like this. But in this Sefer, this is his point. Uh, other than noticing, uh, you know, point A and point negative A, uh, is there any, uh, is there any, uh, is there any way, of, is there any additional thing that's going on to make it a very uh, interesting book? Besides the fact that he's pointing to my tradition, which I see over here, and my view, which I see over here, and they're not the same, and repeating that lots and lots of times, and in a very aesthetically 
there anything else going on besides pointing A and negative? I mean, I think a lot is going on that would require a much more ongoing, sustained set of shiurim. I don't think I'm going to be able to do that within my time, which is probably fairly limited. But yeah, I think there's more to it than that. But what I was doing in this year was trying to give the, what I believe is the heart of this sefer, which I thought I could do in the time allotted. And, that, and that, that's the best I could do. The advantage that you now have for those who read Kohelet on Sukkot is even though it moves pretty fast, you're going to see a lot of different things going on over there that I think are, are hopefully more worthwhile as a result, all the way in the back. Hold on, Siri, you're going to tell me when... Okay, I'm going to... Go, go for it. Just a few minutes before coming into the Shihur, I had a conversation with somebody about something that happened and we were talking about truth. And so I was intrigued by your finding it at the very beginning to the very end something like an algorithm always tell the truth and deal with the consequences of speech rather than hiding it's also a theme that I'm very, very interested in. And I'm wondering, uh, since it seems to be, if I'm correct, uh, an interesting course, if I can tie in all well to that, how do you see that specific issue, not only in the context of Kohelet, Aaron, big liar, who's held out to, you know, so holy because he's a liar, etc., but like all that. You're losing all the people in the front. I'm gonna, I'm gonna. <laughs> okay. If truth is so good, what's up with the idea of white lies? It was, it was a lot. I, I think that's, you know, are there time where there's a place for lack of full honesty? So the answer is our tradition debates all these things, right? Now it's Kohelet is focused on one area of truth. He's not talking about what you tell a bride at the wedding, right? Which is a classic example used in the Talmud and Halakha about what you do. Like, how do you look? The answer is you look fantastic, right? So, and you figure out some nice thing to do it. So, Kohelet is focusing on religious truth, confronting religious challenge. He's not talking about all walks of life. What, does one always have this absolute truthful, you know, the 100% unvarnished truth, or whether there are times and places for other things? He's simply not dealing with that. He's focusing on one issue only, and that is when human perception conflicts with religious teaching and I think that he gives us a very valuable approach okay and and I was told that that was that so at this moment I want to first of all thank Suri and the entire Rudolph and extended family for having me it's such an honor once again to be part of it I thank all of you for taking so much time out of your busy schedules in the holiday season to come and have a serious learning encounter with Kohelet and I wish you all Gemar Chatimah Tava Chag Sameach thank you so much (laughs) 